Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm Marcus Johnson, and this week we're back with our COVID-19 roundtable guests discussing the latest, dare I say, optimistic developments in the pandemic. We've been on this ride before. We know we're not out of the woods. Far too many Arizonans are still being infected with COVID-19 each day, and our hospitals are under extreme pressure. But the latest research and trends do indicate that brighter days are within sight. Let's dive in. Mr. Will Humble, hello. How are you today? I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Thanks. Good, good. Dr. Kara Guerin with Valleywise Health ER Physician. How are you doing? Tired, but okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for asking. And Dr. Joshua LaBear with ASU Biodesign Institute. Josh, what's new? How are you doing? I'm busy, but I'm fine. Yeah, so far, so good. All right. So I don't know where we are in this pandemic, but people often compare this thing to a roller coaster. So multiple choice question to start us off, y'all. Are we A, still making our way to the top of the highest peak of the roller coaster? B, screaming with terrified joy as we're on our descent? C, are we upside down in one of those loops having no idea what's coming next? Or D, is the ride starting to slow down and coming to an end? I'll jump in. I think the ride is click, 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 clicking as we're crossing over the top. We haven't started the descent yet, but the people in the very front can look down and start to see it coming up. That's my read of where the numbers are at the moment. I don't think we've started descending yet. Other parts of the U.S. are descending, but we're not quite there yet. I'm going to look at it like a two-year ride. So when I look at it as a two-year ride, and it's going to end up being a little longer than a two-year ride, I think it's D. If you have to look at it in its full perspective from when we were doing these podcasts back in June of 2020 and then the pandemonium and lethality of last winter and then the Delta waves and now this thing. So I think this is that final ride that the engineers put in like a little scary thing towards the end. Thinking of it as in its full perspective of the whole two years. Okay, so we have the first answer is that we're still at the very beginning of the ride and we're about to make our way over the crest to come all the way down. Will's second answer is we're toward the end of the ride. So Dr. Garen, where are we in this ride? I think it depends on your perspective. Because from a healthcare worker's perspective, we are upside down. <laughs> we have no idea where the ride is going. We're upside down and it's dark and the ride could go on forever. In terms of the numbers, I suspect Josh is probably right slash I hope he's right. I think we are kind of going up over the peak. I've worked a lot the past few weeks. It was very, very busy and the past two days have not been. So that's a tiny, tiny microcosm and there's many reasons for that. But with what Josh said, I sure hope we're kind of like over that last hump and looking, uh, the people in the front cars are looking down to the end or somewhere near the conclusion. All right, Dr. LeBaire, so let's talk numbers. Where are we in terms of cases, hospitalizations? How are right. things looking out there? So in terms of new cases, it's been a little bumpy. Some of that I think has been reporting issues. Sometimes they get a full report. Sometimes we, we don't, we get the numbers are lower, but we're, we're cruising in the sort of 20 something thousand new cases a day range. 
Uh, and it has not, it, it's been stable there for a few days, roughly, if you look at a seven-day trailing average, which is why I think we're out of the exponential rising phase, which is great. We're not climbing up that mountain anymore. We haven't seen a serious drop yet as they have in the east, northeast, or as they have, for example, you know, consistently now since January 5th in, in England, for example, which has come down. You may note that even though England hit its peak around January 5th, they continue to see a rise in hospitalizations for a couple of weeks after that. And that's what we probably should brace ourselves for, is though even though our new case numbers are plateauing, the number of hospitalizations is still rising in Arizona, or at least it looks like it is to me, and will continue to do so for a week, maybe a week and 10 days. ICU beds never went skyrocketing in England, nor that much in the Northeast, and they don't appear to be skyrocketing here. Keep in mind that there's it's fuzzy number because you can only put so many people on a plane, right? At, at some point, they fill all the beds and ICU beds, and then that's it. So they may be controlling that. Although what I hear, and this Omicron doesn't have as much of a respiratory component to it as previous versions did. So, so maybe they aren't rushing to the ICU, but people I talk to who get it are plenty sick, even the ones who were vaccinated and at getting it at home. The word mild is not the one that comes to mind, even though everyone refers to this as mild. That's the take I've got on this. The general narrative is just that this thing is relatively mild. Hopefully, if it plays out the same way that it has in other countries and in other states, this thing basically starts on its downslope as fast as it went up. Are we of the same mindset that that's going to happen in Arizona, that this thing is going to hopefully fade away just as fast as we saw it skyrocket? I think so, because I think what happens is it sucks the oxygen out of the space, right? All these people get infected and they have that window of time after infection that they can't infect other people because after about seven days of having it, you stop producing virus. So, so then there's no one to spread it anymore because everyone's had it and they're sick with it. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen. So it is going to come down. It's what it did in the East Coast. It's what it did in England. It'll do that here too. I think it was in the third wave. It was the fourth wave. Who knows what wave we're on right now. But Arizona peaked and we started to come down and we had some optimism about it. Yeah, because we even on this podcast, we were saying, okay, maybe we'll take a couple of weeks off. After but, Delta. But we came down just for a little bit of time and then we plateaued still at a really high level. What do we need to be thinking about as we start hearing more about us cresting and coming over the hump so that we don't just say, oh, we already hit our peak. Like, let's wipe our hands clean of this thing, and we're back to normal life. I think Will's more of an optimist than I am. So I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to wipe our hands clean of this thing. I think this thing is going to go endemic on us, and it's going to keep coming back. Maybe in this sort of winter window, which seems to be what we get lately, but hard to know. But I, I don't think it's ever going to go fully away. I agree with that. I don't think it's ever going fully away. I think the public health emergency is going to go away in the next few months. But the disease itself is always going to be here. But because everything in the future will be a breakthrough case, whether you had a previous infection, whether you were vaccinated and boosted, whether you were just vaccinated once, I mean, everything is going to be a breakthrough case. And so the T cells will be still standing at the ready. And thank goodness we haven't seen a variant that has escaped the T cell protection of your immune system. So it becomes progressively less lethal with each infection that you get and through the population as a whole, all of the persons who were unwilling to get vaccinated are getting infected like right now and last week and next week. And uh, 
the virus is going to have a harder and harder and harder time finding a new host to infect and replicate in. And eventually it will figure it will just start doing breakthroughs and people will always keep getting infections and it'll add to the list of bugs that people get that they say, I've got a bug. That's what I think. It's to the point now that I've seen people that have come in with COVID two or three times, you know, and sometimes people say, oh, I had COVID. And you're like, mm, are you sure? But they like documented COVID infections and they ask, how can I keep getting this? I'm like, well, you know, things change. And um, oftentimes their more recent infection is not nearly as bad as their previous infections too. Like you'll remember, oh, I saw you, you're in there a couple of months ago or something like that, or six months ago or something. Yeah, for the monoclonal antibodies, one of the exclusion criteria is that you've had a previous COVID infection. So when we're evaluating people to see if they qualify for it, if they're high risk and qualify for it, you ask how many times have you been infected with COVID? And we oftentimes look in the electronic medical record and you can see that they've had multiple documented COVID infections over a different period of time, not like two positive tests in five days, but two positive tests over eight months. I know this from personal experience with friends that the CDC guidance is that if you are infected with COVID-19, that you really don't even need to be terribly worried about it for another 90 days after your initial infection. So are you seeing people come in within that 90 day window, Kara, for a second time? I can't think of someone that has a new infection that's coming with that 90 days. Okay. Having said that, there are a lot of people that return visits for the similar infection. So like within 10, 15 days, and we have a lot of people that come in 20 days out and wonder why they're not feeling better. So then we worry about a secondary bacterial infection, but oftentimes they don't have one and they're just feeling still really crummy. Will, one of the things that you mentioned is the end of the public health emergency. That sounds, I think, to most people like, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal anymore. But I think what you're speaking to actually is, is a federal declaration and a state declaration of a public health emergency. Do you want to go dive in a little bit in terms of what it actually means? Yeah, I'll start at the national level. So Secretary Becerra, head of Health and Human Services, has the statutory authority through Congress to declare public health emergencies. And he just extended the current public health emergency through April 16th, I think might be the 22nd. But second part of April is when, at least right now, how long the public health emergency is going to go through. Now, the reason that you would have a public health emergency is because you want to exercise authority that you don't normally have to do things that you normally wouldn't be able to do under federal law. So, that's the main reason I think HHS has the declaration is because it gives the secretary and the president um, and the, just the different agencies more authority than they have when there's not an emergency. And so ultimately, it's a political decision to end a public health emergency at the federal level. And I'll get to the state level in a sec, because it's not as much of a like public health criteria type decision. It's, do I still want the authority that I enjoy during this public health emergency to do certain kinds of things around testing or requirements for whatever the intervention is? Same thing goes at the state level, where Governor Ducey and uh, Interim Director Harrington have authorities and the ability to do things right now under the declared public health emergency that they don't normally have. And so at some point in the coming months, 
there will be a discussion on the eighth and ninth floor between those two gentlemen and maybe others up on the ninth floor about when, if do we want to end the public health emergency in Arizona? And the question that they'll have to wrestle with at that point is, do they want to continue to enjoy the authority that they get from that statute, ARS 36787 and another statute in Title 13 that the governor has. And it'll be a political decision about whether they want to keep that in place. Part of that authority is like the requirements for reporting. Believe it or not, the state health department has never revised the communicable disease rules to make COVID-19 reportable. That's all only being reported because of the public health emergency that's declared under state law. And they haven't even opened the docket on it. So if they want to continue to at least track this, they're going to have to keep the public health emergency open or else open the docket and make COVID-19 reportable. Same thing goes with all the hospital metrics. The hospitals are compelled to report that data that you see on the ADHS dashboard because of the public health emergency that is in effect that Interim Director Harrington and Governor Ducey have. And so at, at some point, they're going to have to wrestle with, if we end this emergency, we also end the authority. And some of that authority is being used for good stuff, like the reporting, the stuff with the hospitals, certain things like that. Essentially, all of the executive orders, whether we think they're good or bad or somewhere in between, fall away once the public health emergency is ended. Right. Most of it. Yeah, that's right. So that's ultimately that the question at the federal and the state level. Like, when do I believe I no longer need this additional authority because it's time to move on? Right now at the federal level, it's sitting at, in late April, but that could be extended. At the state level, who knows? One of the good things about the public health emergency and what it declares at a federal level is that nobody can get kicked off of Medicaid at this time. So if you have Medicaid health insurance coverage until the end of the quote unquote public health emergency, you cannot get booted off regardless of income changes. However, once that public health emergency ends, that means that anybody who started making a little bit too much money during the pandemic in order to stay on Medicaid, they're going to lose their health insurance coverage and need to transfer to something else. And I think latest estimates are something like 500,000 Arizonans could be in that group of people. So getting the word out about that and actually making sure that that doesn't create some sort of a huge dip in the rate of insured Arizonans, is, it's going to be a heavy lift. Dr. LeBaire, ASU Biodesign Institute. One of my first interactions during the pandemic with ASU Biodesign was actually going down near the state capitol, sitting in a line in my car, driving up into a parking garage, spitting in a tube, making sure that everything was sealed up nice and tightly, and then waiting a couple of days, 24 to 48 hours in order to get my test results back. I know you've also done a lot of modeling in the past. What's next for ASU Biodesign Institute and your role in this pandemic? We continue to do saliva testing. We're not doing it in as many places around the state because everybody else is doing all the collection, but we ran 30,000 tests last week. So we're busy. We're probably not going to do quite as many this week, but we're still doing quite a few. And we've opened up longer hours at Skysong for people who want to do saliva collection. The modeling is not doing as much as they used to, largely because it's very hard to model at this point. All the classic models don't apply anymore. All the assumptions that one makes don't apply anymore. So they're not doing that so much. And we're trying to continue innovation on sample collection. So right now, 
I'm pushing for. We hand the tube to people. They do the collection in the car. And you may remember when you did it, as you drove out, you flashed them your phone and you flashed them your tube and they scanned them both and then they dropped it in a... So my idea is now you just do all that yourself in your car with your phone. You just basically input your numbers. And then as you drive by, you just reach out the window and drop the tube in a container. We call that doubles drop off. I think then we'll be able to collect like three times as many people. Because the biggest thing limiting testing right now is collecting the sample. That's the hard part right now. And saliva is way easier to collect than swabs. So, so I think that's, that's a big part of where we're going now. And of course, the other big thing we're doing now is a lot of research. So our group is developing a novel test that will look for antibodies. It looks for antibodies against 96 different proteins at a time. So you can look at all the coronavirus proteins and all the other coronavirus proteins. And you can look at a whole bunch of other respiratory antigen proteins. And you can even look at autoantibodies against inflammatory proteins all in the same assay. And so look for that. That's, we hope we're going to submit a paper on that pretty soon. And we got some groups that are developing new vaccine candidates, vaccines that won't require cold chain. Because I think one of the problems we have our current vaccine set is that they all require cold chain and we got to get away from that. And we have groups that are looking at, well, Ephraim Lim has done a great job of sequencing looking at the, the, the various variants of Omicron that are floating around the state. So, What do you think the future of vaccines for COVID-19 and future variants looks like? Yeah, no, I think there are going to be some new technologies that will come out that don't require cold chain. The one that we're looking at is a modified pox virus vaccine. So they've gutted the pox virus. It doesn't have any of the pox virus proteins, but it still carries that. It's the still carrier. And it looks like it might be able to, you know, be maintained even possibly without any cold chain at all, just not even a refrigerator. So that would, you know, for parts of the world that Will's brought up many times, will make a huge difference. So is that, for those of us who aren't familiar with the creation of vaccines, is that mRNA technology? Is that existing technology? It's a semi-existing technology. There's some modifications that have been made. So it's a little bit newer than that, but there, you know, there have been viral delivery. Well, like, you know, the um, J&J vaccine is a, is a viral delivery system. This one happens to use a different virus and a different plan, but it's, it's similar. It's, it's an existing approach using viruses to deliver the payload, which induces the immune system. The advantage is that viruses, the right viruses can be very stable without having to be kept cold all the time. I want to acknowledge the sense of privilege that I feel that we even get to talk about the future a little bit, at least for Josh, you, myself, and Will were alluding to the, the, the end of the quote unquote public health emergency. Meanwhile, Dr. Garen and her team and her colleagues are still buried under this thing. Dr. Garen, you alluded to this a little bit, but what is it like in the hospitals right now. You said in the past couple of days, it seemed like it might be letting up a little bit, but what's the overall sense of of yourself and your colleagues right now? The overall sense is uh, fatigue and just amazing that there have been so many patients in general. Um, We have just, uh, the first thing I want to point out is, I know it's been pointed out in this podcast numerous times, but that we're under contingency standard of care, which means that the normal rules are not applicable. I think that's the first thing that people don't realize. And if you are a patient at the hospital, you may not realize this, but a lot of patients do. 
so patients don't realize that they have to wait an extra long period of time because there are just so many patients. The nursing situation and staff shortage has improved somewhat because we have hired so many traveling nurses. I will say a lot of our staff have left to go get traveling nursing positions because it pays so incredibly well and it's well worth it. They know that they can shave years off of their working career if they go travel. And sometimes traveling means a different hospital in the city. It doesn't necessarily mean going somewhere physically particularly different, which means that the staff, there's really not a ton of staff left that knows the system and have been around for a long period of time. And because you're working so hard every time you're there, you get really tired. So staff in general are just really, really fatigued. To come back to the contingency care, healthcare today is not the same as it was before the pandemic three years ago. As we kind of alluded to earlier, people that were previously required ICU care are not going to the ICU because we simply don't have the space and staff. People that previously would have been admitted to the hospital simply are not being admitted to the hospital and discharged with follow-up because there simply is not space. Part of the contingency of care is if you're admitted and you don't need a cardiac monitor and you're on what we call a regular floor, Normally, the staffing ratio is five or six nurses to one patient. It is eight nurses to one patient. So this one nurse has to care for eight people dispensing medications, attending to their needs. Obviously, there are support staff and techs that help. But again, we're short-staffed. So everybody is very busy. So to me, it's just, it's everywhere. And a lot of patients are coming in with COVID-like symptoms And unfortunately, some people are coming into the emergency department for a test because they can't seem to get tests anywhere else, which is very frustrating. But we are to the point now also where when we admit patients to the hospital, every person gets swabbed. And we have so many patients that have a coincidental COVID infection to the point where our hospital was built in the 60s and 70s. We are thankfully getting a very nice new hospital in the next few years, but we don't have a lot of private rooms and we always run out of private rooms in the emergency department because there's so many patients with COVID. And patients wait in the emergency department for hours, sometimes days, to get a room upstairs. And studies have shown that if you're admitted to the hospital, the best place to get care is up on the floor. It's not in the emergency department. I want to just jump in here because one of my pet peeves this whole time has been this ADHS dashboard suggesting that the hospitals are like, and you hear it on the radio, hospitals are at 94% of capacity, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, that's so wrong. It's like 110% because they're not counting the ED holds. All those people that are in the emergency department, they're not counted in the numerator, but they're in the hospital. And the dashboards, the way they the DHS does this, they guarantee it never goes over 100%. They just, they tweak the math. Well, they got their hand on the scale. They make sure it never goes over 100%. And it's the way they're doing the math and the fact that they're not counting the ED holds. So all you listeners out there, when you hear next time on the radio that it's 94% or read in the Republic or your local newspaper that it's 94%, just add 15% to that. And that'll give you like the honest answer. Thank you, Will. And that's exactly how we feel. It's exactly how we feel. And you know, we're told, we, we, you come in at the beginning of your shift, you say kind of what's the status? What, what, how many staff do I have in the emergency department? What is the bed situation upstairs? And it's always, there's no bed. So you just have to wait. One night we got a bunch of beds and I asked the administration or the nursing administration, what happened? And she said, well, we had a lot of eternal discharges tonight. I'm like, oh, so basically all these people are getting beds because people died. Thank you, Will. But that is exactly 
we are running at a hundred. It feels like we're always running at 110%. I, I want to touch you. more on, yeah. on the nursing workforce situation. I know that it was a couple of weeks ago, Dignity and Banner also announced that if healthcare providers are diagnosed positive with COVID, and if you are mildly having symptoms or if you are asymptomatic, feel free to come into work still. Yep. Has that been um, the same case with ValleyWise? You know, I don't know that ValleyWise has changed its policies, but now that the quarantine has decreased to five days, people come back to work, certainly day six. I think at this point, almost everybody has gotten it. And some people have gotten it at work, but a lot of people have gotten it from their kids. But people are pretty honest and uh, they're like, yeah, you know, let's not sit next to each other. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to go have my uh, meal out in this other room where I can close the door and then leave it open when I leave. And, you know, like I had COVID pretty recently. You should probably stay a few steps away from me. It makes that much more, you know, people have to take time off, which means that we're that much more short staffed. And anyone that has had COVID, well, most people that have had COVID say they don't come back 100%. I mean, it's great that they not everyone has a lot of symptoms, but that doesn't mean you're coming back roaring at day six. I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, big NFL fan. And the way that you see, at least in, in professional football and other professional sports, these guys go out with COVID for a little while. They come back. They're expected to perform at the exact same level. And my boy Micah Parsons on the Dallas Cowboys was sucking wind in our playoff game, and he could not perform to the level that he was able to because it was his first day back from COVID quarantine. And you can tell that even professional athletes are hurting after they're, quote unquote, done with their isolation period. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Reminds me of that kind of frustration of hearing people talk about, well, let's just have a chicken pox party with COVID, right? Let's just get everybody together and get them infected with this thing. First of all, it's never clear whether that was a great idea for chickenpox, but at least with chickenpox, we had decades of knowledge of the what that virus did. And so we could at least somewhat predict that overall it was relatively benign, but we have no clue yet what the long-term consequences of this virus are. And we do know that there is long COVID, that some people do have symptoms months later. And so to fool around and just invite people to get infected as like the Wall Street Journal opinion pieces have suggested to do, just crazy to me. Let's not play with fire yet when we don't know what we're playing with. And people also, I think they're fatigued, not just health workers. I'm talking about people in general, because there's always the, well, you know, my blah, blah, blah was, had a little runny nose, but we thought it was nothing. So we didn't get tested or we didn't quarantine or we didn't isolate or whatever. And now the whole family has it. And right. sometimes, like, oh, we just thought it was a cold. I'm like, well, it's COVID. And then but then you have patients who are unvaccinated and they said, what, I have COVID? I'm like, yeah, unfortunately you have COVID. And then, you know, the tears flow. What about my immunocompromised ex or even worse, immunocompromised child that hasn't been vaccinated? Deep down inside, I want to scream, well, you probably should have thought of that before. But the compassion in me says, I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm sorry that you're going through this. You should probably call your child just doctor. It's uh, exhausting. And I will say that, I know a lot of anecdotal story, stories that healthcare providers are getting really tired about asking about vaccination because of some of the blowback that we get. I mean, we still do, but I know that there's parts of the patient encounter where healthcare providers are like, oh, all right, now I have to ask about the vaccine. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. 
So a couple of weeks ago, we also learned from the Supreme Court of the United States that the vaccine mandates that were trying to be imposed on large businesses were not in line with constitutional authority of OSHA. However, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services can require it of some of their organizations that they fund. Josh, how does that affect ASU's policy? And Will, what else are you hearing about implications for Arizona based on those rulings? Here's the thing. So first of all, you got you got exactly right. The Supreme Court said Congress didn't give OSHA the authority to implement that rule the way they did, you know, avoiding the Administrative Procedures Act and stuff, but that CMS was acting within its authority. So they're in the process of doing the compliance checks and that on the CMS side of things. Here's my attitude. It, it, I might, it might surprise you the way I answer this. I don't think that Supreme Court decision on the OSHA requirement not being able to be implemented is going to make a lick of difference. And the reason I say that is because Omicron is moving so swiftly and so fast, and it's infecting all the unvaccinated people at such a pace that Setting up an administrative system among those businesses to get people compelled to get vaccinated and then wait for them to two doses and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Omicron just made it a moot point. That's my attitude. It's like I'm talking about the OSHA thing. I just don't think that had the Supreme Court let OSHA's requirement go through, I just don't think it would have made that much difference because of the fact that the requirement would have become in place at a time when Omicron was already rifling through all the unvaccinated and previously uninfected people. Omicron usurped the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was just going too fast. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing you correct, Will, and I don't want to misstate what you're saying. Are you suggesting that it is a moot point for organizations, especially large employers, to even have a vaccine mandate now because the virus is spreading so quickly? Yeah, there's staff that are unvaccinated or infected by now, or they will be next week. And to administratively make it happen at this point, it's, I mean, you'd using a whole lot of your resources and for, I don't know what you're going to get out of it because those people are either infected or going to be infected next week. It's interesting to point that out because, you know, that and another thing, which is that, you know, while everyone waited for the Supreme Court to make a decision, a lot of businesses were chasing down their people. And by the time the Supreme Court had ruled, better than 90% of ASU employees were already vaccinated. So th- that part of it, I think, was effective. The, the businesses that were operating to, under the assumption that the Supreme Court ruling was going to uphold the vaccination requirement, that did some good. And that did some good for those businesses that actually did their due diligence. But for those d- businesses that didn't do that and and were like, okay, we're just going to wait for the court case to make our decision on how we're going to implement this, those staff are infected now, you know, and they got they're building their T cells the natural way. That's breaking news to me. <laughs> like, well, I mean, do you agree? Of, I hear your point. I definitely hear your point that you know this thing is sweeping over everybody, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. Obviously, those who are unvaccinated are going to have tougher go of it. But in terms of whether or not a a company wants to put in place a vaccine mandate and go through all the logistics of that, by the time you're ready to launch it, your entire staff may have already been, you know, 90 percent immunized naturally. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what I was trying to say. That's fascinating. That's a very interesting perspective. It makes me feel much more uplifted to some degree. Yeah, I will say that, you know, even before 
the infection part, most of ASU was vaccinated. So a, a huge, huge fraction of people are vaccinated. We did a sero survey over the summer. Oh no, not the summer, in, in September. And even then, now to be fair, there might've been some selection bias by the people who volunteered for the survey, but better than 90% of those people were vaccinated already. And, and, and we documented that in terms of the serum as well. Couldn't you tell the difference between the people that got infected and the people that got the vaccine because of the, like the kind of antibodies and all? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a small number of people who didn't think that they were infected that looks to us like they were infected. But the overwhelming majority of people said they were vaccinated and sure enough, they were. Switching gears a little bit, still talking policy. The legislative session started two weeks ago. Not surprisingly, vaccines is going to be a major topic at the state legislature. Will, what are you hearing down at the Capitol about good ideas or not so good ideas that might pop up during this legislative session? Mostly it's not so good ideas, but I think mostly those bills will be unsuccessful. Some of them look like they're being proposed by legislators that want to stake out a position and, and, and you know, uh, go back to their precinct committee persons and say this is what they did, knowing that it's not something that's going to go through. The The biggest and most problematic ones are the ones that would have the longest lasting impact are those that would limit or take away the authority of the state health director to add vaccines to the required list. The last vaccines that were added were ones that I added before I was director, actually, when Susan Gerard was in the job and Governor Paul Tano was the governor, we added a chickenpox and meningococcal. Those are the last two vaccines to be added to the school required list. But it's important for future health directors to have the ability to think through the evidence and propose new vaccines that would be on the school required list. Uh, there are some, there's a bill that would take that authority away. There's other, there's another bill that would say to that, that just limits the state health director in the future to not being able to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the required school vaccine list. Also HPV there's it's at, it's it got both of those in that bill. So, you know, most of them are bad things, but, I'm optimistic that given the margins in both the health and in the Senate, that I'd be surprised to see them go through the entire legislature. And, uh, but if they do, I, you know, the all bets are off as to what the governor would do. Cause when he first came into office in 2015 and I met with them at the very beginning, when he first took office and I was the, still the state health director, we had some measles cases and I met with him up on the ninth floor and he understood the importance of vaccine requirements in school. And uh, I even heard him, he was taking notes when I said, it's the number one public health achievement in the 20th century. And I heard him on the radio repeat that a few (laughs) days later or that day, maybe. So at that point he was pro vaccine, but I don't know what he would do if he got bills that would prohibit future health directors from adding the COVID-19 or the HPV vaccine to the school required list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But remember, here's the thing about that school required list. It should be the kinds of diseases that spread in classrooms. I know the politics of it right this second, but I think it could make a strong case that this is one of the top priority vaccines to add to the school required list in the future, if not right now. So we mentioned at the start of this episode that we're kind of entering into a new phase of this pandemic, that the Omicron variant is 
milder, although it's probably not the best word to use. I use the word less lethal. It's less lethal. It is far more infectious and it is less lethal. Less lethal head to head when compared to Delta. So knowing that, what is your general recommendation to the public at this time? My general advice is, you know, so I, I'm not a big proponent of going and getting infected. I think people should still do the best they can to avoid getting this virus because we just don't know enough about it. And viruses are always worse for us than not viruses. <laughs> so, I mean, let's face it, you know, there are, I could list a number of viruses that cause cancer. You guys just mentioned HPV is just one of them. So, you know, viruses we know cause cancer, they can cause neurodegenerative diseases, they can kill your liver. They can do all kinds of nasty stuff to you, not necessarily immediately. Sometimes it takes months and years for them to have these kinds of long-term chronic side effects. And while we we don't necessarily have a reputation for that for the coronavirus family, we don't know yet. And let's not play with it. Let's just, you know, avoid it if we can. If you can't, you can't. I mean, there's nothing we can do. I mean, it, it is infecting a lot of people and it's very infectious, but you can avoid it, I would. In the emergency department, I don't have an opportunity to give people a lot of preventive medicine advice, but when people do get COVID, you know, talking about isolation and being responsible in terms of getting everyone else in the household tested to make sure that they're not spreading it to other people, especially if they have kids and their kids are going to school or there's other adults in the house that are going out to work. And that similar to what Josh said, you don't really know how the virus is going to affect you. And you also don't know who you can give the virus to. So unfortunately, there still are a lot of unvaccinated people. And some of those unvaccinated people are high risk. Chances are, yes, it's less lethal, but that doesn't mean that someone's going to have a bad outcome. And there still are plenty of immunocompromised or elderly patients that are vaccinated that are coming to the emergency department. They're not coming because of hypoxia. You can't breathe as much as for other complications because they're not eating or because they fall because they're lightheaded. So in addition to, we don't know what the long-term circumstances for each individual person is, is it's your responsibility as a person and as in your community and as a neighbor to try and protect other people who are susceptible to the virus. Will, same question to you. Will, what would you urge of the public at this time? Well, to the public who's listening to this podcast, which is a different public than the rest. No, it's, it's the entire public, a, Will. I don't know what you're talking I, about. No, but if they're listening, I'm going to speak to them. Um, <laughs> and that is to keep your head down for another six weeks. This isn't going to go on forever. Do your best. Wear an N95 when you're in, when you can't avoid crowded areas. Get your booster when you hit that six month mark. Or go online and get your four tests, you know, through your house so that you've got some backstock for when you have people of questionable status who visit your house, who are especially if they're going to stay with you, which a lot of times any a lot of us have Midwestern visitors these this time of year and they come with varying degrees of respect for this virus. Have the kits, use the kits, be careful about going out into public when you are having symptoms, use your test kits. That's my advice for the next six weeks. I think that was great advice, but the only thing that I can't get out of my head right now, Will, is that we need to invite Dr. Bob back to create a cartoon depicting a person of questionable status. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know what that looks like. All right, everybody, soapbox moment. 
What else should we be discussing? What's top of your mind at this point in the pandemic that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, the only thing we need to talk about were boosters. If fourth boosters are a good idea. And my only knowledge about that is the study that they did in Israel that showed, and Josh and Will, you probably know more about this than I do, but it showed that uh, didn't seem to make too much difference unless maybe you're severely immunocompromised. That seems to be what people are saying. I mean, I personally think of the booster as part of the initial inoculation. I think it's part of the scheduled. More and more now, vaccines that are coming out tend to do like a six-month dose. That's part of the initial vaccination series. And I think that we just kind of missed that in the initial rollout of the vaccine year. But that I think that that booster is really part of the initial. And then beyond that, it's not clear to me how much, at least I can tell you from the data I've seen, that the initial vaccine series doesn't do a lot against protecting against Omicron in terms of infection. It does plenty in terms of preventing severe disease, but it doesn't do a lot in terms of preventing infection. And so they may have to come out with a different booster altogether if they want to protect against Omicron infection. Just from what I've read is there's no plan to really come out with an Omicron specific vaccination. And I think we've talked about that before. It'll be very expensive and time consuming. It's called a breakthrough case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's the vaccine. So I want yeah. Marcus, what I want to do is spend just a second. We just said, what haven't we talked about? We haven't talked about the international aspect of this yet on this episode. And I think Omicron, given how incredibly contagious it is, is making the COVAX effort less important. We had a real opportunity to do a much better job with international, with global access to vaccines. COVAX made some progress. I think they've delivered a billion vaccines over the course of the two-year period. Their goal was two billion. They didn't meet that, but they did a yeoman's job trying to do it, given the resources that they had from the rich countries and the fact that the rich countries wouldn't open source the formulas and stuff for the vaccines because the vaccine manufacturers were unwilling to do that even if their R&D was paid for by governments like Moderna's was. But this is rifling through the globe really, really fast, much faster than you could deploy vaccine. And the good news is that an infection with the Omicron variant, and of course you need more time, but infection with previous variants, and this is from 2021 data, shows that you leave that infection with robust T-cell immunity. And your antibodies that you have will be specific to the version of the virus you were infected with. So what I'm trying to say is I think the, this version of the virus is doing COVAX's job where the developing world is getting infected. And I, that's why I, I have this opinion, just how infectious it is. And we were just darn lucky it wasn't as lethal as Delta or yeah. it would have been an apocalypse. There's no way you can deploy vaccine as fast as this virus. There's just no way this version. Again, Omicron usurped COVAX. Yeah. Omicron. I've been very <laughs> negative about Omicron, but perhaps it has done some good things. Only because it was a lot less lethal. Yes. You know, it, it, the way you, when you said there, yeah. it, it had been Delta, I cannot imagine the destruction the, it would have left behind. Just, I'll say this. The, the most stressful two weeks for me in this whole pandemic were the first two weeks of December. Why? Because at that point, we knew how much more contagious Omicron was from the data in South Africa. We knew it was way more contagious, but we didn't know the clinical presentation yet. 
And that took like until mid-December before we knew and had initial data from South Africa and later the UK that this was significantly less lethal. And that was the moment that I was cooling my jets. And I'm like, okay, well, this would have been the apocalypse had it, mm-hmm. had it been as lethal as Delta. But because it wasn't, it's still extremely, le- it's still lethal because it's infecting so many people so fast, but it's not the apocalypse that it could have easily been. Right. Yeah. And it hasn't been the apocalypse for the world, nor for the state of Arizona. However, we haven't performed as well as we maybe could have. Will, I know that the Public Health Association recently highlighted some data on death rates. Is that right? Yeah, Arizona is second in per capita death rates from COVID-19 in the entire country, right behind Mississippi. And if you look at the trend lines for death and for both Mississippi and Arizona, we have a steeper death curve. And well, uh, I have no reason to believe that's not going to change because we're not doing any mitigation and the hospitals are swamped in terms of the care they can provide and stuff. So if you extrapolate that out, I think it's February 15th, the lines cross and Arizona will become the most lethal state when it comes to deaths from COVID-19 per capita. That's that current or that you're looking overall? Looking over two years. So going all the way back to one year ago today, which is with the first cases in the U.S. So if you do the whole two-year period, Arizona has the highest per capita death rate for COVID-19 in the and entire do you think that, country. Is that largely driven by that the apocalypse that we had in that first run when we were like popping? Yeah. Away? Well, I think it's two things. Number one, is that it's the policy decisions that the governor made, to, and especially to not do anything about bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, nor to require universal face coverings in public indoor environments during that last winter wave. Second is the Delta wave, which had a lot of deaths in, in our Delta, both the double-humped wave that we had, and that was in, in part not totally attributable to policy decisions, not doing universal masking, not enforcing any kind of mitigation in bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. But third, and I have to admit this, is that the demographics do, I'm sure, play some role in that. The states that tended to have an older population would be overrepresented, but there are many states with disproportionate number of older persons that did far better than Arizona, and they had governors that made better decisions. All right. Well, for being in a phase right now where we're hopefully moving into a a better era of this pandemic, I think we use the word apocalypse probably six times too many. Um, So our apologies to the audience. Um, But Will, Josh, Kara, I want to thank you all for your time. As always, you are all so very insightful and we really do value all of your insights. Thank you, as always, to Dr. Guerin, Dr. LeBaire, and Will Humble for your ability to clear a path through all of the noise. Let's be clear. Arizona has taken a hard hit during this pandemic. We're near the worst in the nation in terms of deaths per capita, and our healthcare system, operated still by the same selfless healthcare heroes who we once cheered as they made their ways to and from their shifts, is struggling to stay afloat due in large part to the rapid spread of the Omicron variant. Fortunately, most evidence paints a picture of Arizona sitting at a tipping point, on the verge of transitioning away from a public health emergency. We've been at this for a very long time. We're all exhausted. But maybe, just maybe, if we keep our heads down for a few more weeks, 
we can put this COVID-19 era behind us. Thank you to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can access all of our episodes at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.